0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bibles now to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. As you're doing that, I'm going to begin this morning with a very different obituary, very odd Please join me in remembering a great icon of the entertainment community. The Pillsbury Doughboy died yesterday of a yeast infection (laughs) and trauma complications from repeated pokes in the belly. He was 71. Doughboy was buried in a lightly greased coffin. Dozens of celebrities turned out to pay their respects, including Mrs. Buttersworth, Hungry Jack, the California Raisins, Betty Crocker, the Hostess Twinkies, and, of course, Captain Crunch. The grave site was piled high with flowers. That's F-L-O-U-R-S. Toward the end, it was thought that he'd raised once again, but he was no tart. (laughs) Aunt Jemima delivered the eulogy and lovingly described Doughboy as a man who never knew how much he was needed. (laughs) Doughboy rose quickly in show business, but his later life was filled with turnovers. He was not considered a very smart cookie, wasting much of his dough on half-baked schemes. Despite being a little flaky at times, he was still a crusty old man and was considered a role model for millions Doughboy is survived by his wife, Play Doe, his two children, John Doe and Jane Doe, plus they had one in the oven. He is also survived by his elderly dad, Pop Tart. The funeral was held at 3:50 for about 20 minutes. Now. The reason we laugh at this obituary is because we all know the Pillsbury Doughboy wasn't real. He didn't exist. Now, I'm looking at some of your faces. He didn't. (laughs) I thought he was real. No, we know that he wasn't a real character, so we can laugh at something like this. The children of Israel, living thousands of years ago in the land of Canaan, were surrounded by gods and goddesses, though represented by images, didn't exist. They weren't real. They were all made up. They were all imaginary gods. In fact, Elijah the prophet does make fun of them. In 1 Kings 18, atop Mount Carmel, as they're crying out to Baal and Asherah, he says, well, maybe you ought to call a little bit louder because obviously your God can't hear you. Or maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's on vacation. He needs to be summoned. He was mocking them because he knew they're praying to somebody. They might as well be praying to the Pillsbury Doughboy. He doesn't exist. And so the writer of Psalm 115 says, They have eyes, but they can't see. They have hands, but they can't handle. They have feet, but they can't walk. Speaking about the images of these gods and goddesses. And they have ears but they can't hear so what good is it praying to a god who can't hear you or has no capacity to communicate to you and so we've been studying last week and this week the second commandment where god says don't you dare lower me to the level of all of these false gods and goddesses in the land of canaan all they have is an image that represents them but there's no one there. Well, let's go back and look at our text, shall we? The second commandment comprises verse 4, 5, and 6 of Exodus 20. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and who keep my commandments. Last week we noted, we remarked on, that this commandment made the top ten. That's significant. And that God considered it so important that it's number two of the top ten. So last week we talked a little bit about the prohibition, the thou shalt not. And we looked at its meaning in the Old Testament, in the New Testament briefly, and then how it's considered in modern times. And we, we, we showed that it's not really art or the expression of art that is a question here, but idolatry. That the first commandment says... You shall not worship false gods. The second commandment tells us, You shall not worship the true God in a false way. Yeah, you can have the right God, but you ought to do it in the right way. So we looked at that prohibition. Then we discussed the problem that people have and the reason this commandment is broken so often. We discussed three reasons that people will often cast an image. Peer pressure personal loss, and the problem people have with an invisible God. Well, that was last week. Now, we continue on in our study today, and we want to look at the premise, why God says this, why this is so important, and then the proclamation that God makes of himself. Now, let's just remind ourselves that these Ten Commandments are not multiple choice, okay? That is, none of us can say, well, this is all fine and I've studied now all the Ten Commandments and I like six of them. Or I'll take seven of them, but four of them, I just three of my, throw out. This is not multiple choice. They're all God's commandments. But I've discovered a lot of people in looking at the Ten Commandments, some are looking for guidance, some are looking for a moral code, a lot of people are looking for loopholes. They're looking for why this doesn't re- apply to them why these laws are outdated and have nothing to do with modern times. Sort of like W.C. Fields, you know, he didn't believe in the Bible, but on his deathbed he was reading it. And somebody said, why are you reading the Bible? He said, I'm looking for loopholes. I guess when you're about to die, some people would do that. Let's go to our text once again and look at the premise why this is so important. So in verse 4, "...shall not make a carved image." He elaborates on that. Verse 5, "...you shall not bow down to them, nor serve them." Watch this. "...for I, the Lord your God, am..." Stop right there. Stop right there. Here's the premise. "...I, the Lord your God, am." I exist. I'm real. I'm active, and I'm living." Now, before we finish the sentence that he's a jealous God and what he does, first of all, he is. And remember, when God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, and Moses said, well, what's your name? I'm going to have to tell the children of Israel that I was sent by you. and They're going to say, what's his name? God said, I am that I am. You tell them that the great I am has sent you to them. In other words, God is unlimited. He is eternal. He is immutable. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, the writer says, whoever comes to God must first believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. That makes sense. Before you're ever going to have any relationship with God, you've got to believe God is that He exists, that He is real, that He's active. And notice in our text, God is active emotionally. He says, I am a jealous God. That's an emotion. Next verse, God declares His mercy. That's an emotion. We understand from our text that God is powerful. He's going to visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. So, God is saying, look, I'm alive I'm real. Not like all these false gods and that all they have to show for themselves are these graven images. I am. Now, follow me here. Because God is real, because He's alive, because He's active, He's perfectly capable of revealing Himself to people, right? And yet, He has chosen not to reveal Himself in any form, We discovered that last week. God said, you remember when I gave the law to Sinai, you heard my voice, but you saw no form. So God never gave a form that they were to make, or an image. So, we must not depict God any more than how God depicts himself. Therefore, images dishonor God for two reasons. Number one, because they obscure God's glory. Now think about that. Anytime you make an image, anytime you cast something and say, this represents God, you are obscuring the full nature and glory of God. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 18. The prophet says, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare Him to? The workman molds an image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. In other words, there's not a true image of God to be found in all the world. Any image, once you cast it, is very limited, which would deny the very essence of God. God is unlimited. God is spirit. And Jesus said, Whoever worships him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So, as soon as you make an image, say, This represents the God that I worship, you have limited God, the unlimited God, and you have obscured God's glory. Think back to the first experience and exercise of this kind of idolatry, which was the golden calf, right? Exodus 32. Now, I don't necessarily think that the children of Israel had any malice in their hearts when they made this golden calf. In fact, I think that they really wanted to make a representation of the God that they worshiped, and they wanted to represent God's power and strength. But what you do need to understand is where they came from. They came from Egypt. God is now revealing himself to them afresh in the wilderness. But they came from Egypt, and in Egypt there was a god that was worshipped called Apis, A-P-I-S. He was a calf, and he was, grew up to be a, a bull. He was the god of strength, the renewer of life he was called. According to Egyptian legend, get this, Apis the bull came from an experience where light shone from heaven on a cow on the earth, And she gave birth to a calf named Apis, the god of strength. So there they are, camped before Mount Sinai, and what do they see? Flashes of lightning. They hear thunder. And with all of this lightning flashes, they thought back to the legend they heard as kids about Apis the bull, the God of strength, the renewer of life. So the statement they were making by this golden calf is, our God is powerful. Our God is strong. He's able to deliver. The moment, however, they cast that image, they limited God's glory. Because that golden image, though it was there to represent God's power and God's greatness. Said nothing of his moral attributes. Said nothing of his love, his patience, his kindness, his long-suffering. Only his strength. So Moses naturally, and God naturally, became very upset at this first experience of idolatry. Now, if I place a crucifix in my view or in my church or at home, I am picturing the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. Jesus dying on a cross. It's beautiful, but it's incomplete. It, it hides something. It tells me nothing of the majesty, the deity of Jesus Christ. It shows me a dying Jesus. doesn't tell me the whole story. That he rose from the dead and conquered the grave... I have now limited him who is limitless. Now, I have no problem with the crucifix and what it depicts, by the way. I grew up with them. My problem is with what a crucifix fails to depict. There is not a depiction or an image in all the world that can capture the complete picture of God. And here's why. I don't know if you know this or not, but the revelation of God doesn't end here. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 7, that in the ages to come, he will show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So, if God's going to take all of eternity to continually reveal himself to mankind, how could I possibly think that this statue that I make can totally represent him? It must, the moment it is cast, obscure the full glory of God. So the question that people often ask me is, well, Skip, when you pray, what image is in your mind? None. I'm not closing my eyes picturing a grandfatherly bearded man floating on the clouds with harps around him. There's no image I could ever have in my mind that would adequately capture his nature and character. Second, images mislead God's people. Not only do they not reveal all there is to know about God, but they do reveal something that could lead people astray. Images give impressions. It's a psychological fact that if I focus my thoughts on an image of the one that I'm praying to, that I come to think of Him in the way that image is depicting Him. Now, if I'm focusing on that aspect, that image. And I'm praying to the one that supposedly that image represents. That's going to change my approach to him based on what I see in that image. Here's an example. Once again, the golden calf. They made that golden calf, the God of strength, the God of power, the renewer of life. And as they, the Bible says, sat down to eat and drink, they rose up to play or exercise in revelry they felt this strong urge to worship their strong God in a strong, frenzied, and out-of-control manner. How they viewed God dictated how they worshiped God. So it actually led them astray. Now, some people have so focused on the suffering, dying Christ that they approach Jesus in a suffering, dying manner. Throughout history you can read several accounts of people who felt the only way God wanted to be worshipped is by taking whips and whipping themselves as they were praying, by crawling on their knees to shrines, cutting their knees up and leaving blood on every step because that's what pleases God. So focused on the suffering Christ that they themselves become suffering people. Now, with all due respect to any artist who would portray God or Jesus... The artist is drawing what is in his or her mind. It is a projection, often, of himself. It's sort of like the little girl in kindergarten class. All of them were drawing. And the kindergarten teacher noticed one little girl, head bowed, working hard, diligently, never looking up. And the teacher took an interest and said, What is it you're drawing? She said, I'm drawing a picture of God. God. The kindergarten teacher said, God, nobody knows what God looks like. And she looked up and said, they will in a minute. <laughs> and so she drew her little picture of God, how she projected God to be. Now the fundamental problem that I have personally with pictures or statues of Jesus, don't get paranoid here, better not invite him over for dinner, so I have to take all his pictures off Can relax a little bit. Here's the fundamental problem I have. They bring transcendent God, limitless God, to a comfortable size, a manageable size. It's basically me creating God in my image, rather than being the one that God created in His image. Have you noticed the art of Jesus? Let's go back to the 1950s through the 60s. It's something that I noticed, maybe you have too, that He gets depicted differently in different generations. So if you look back to the average picture of Jesus Christ drawn in the 1950s, you find a very frail, thin, gaunt, pale, almost effeminate-looking Jesus who glows a lot in all the pictures. He's, He's beaming his face. You get to the 1960s, and Jesus is pictured as sort of a college radical. Now he's keeping in step with the times. You get to the 1970s, and the pictures or cards of Jesus is that he's the macho Jesus. His hair's layered, quaffed a little bit more. You get to the 80s, 90s, he's the upwardly mobile Jesus. He's, he's fitting a narcissistic view of what they want Jesus to be like. So, here's the bottom line God's uniqueness requires unique devotion that no image on earth could ever capture. God's transcendence, God's uniqueness demands unique worship. Again, that's why Jesus said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And he was drawing the contrast between that and worshiping him through the art depicted in the temples. When the woman said, we worship on this mountain, you Jews worship at the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus said, the time is coming when that isn't the issue. It's spirit and truth. Let's go back to our text. That's a, we've, we're done with that now. Let's look at how God does reveal himself. Here's the proclamation of the true God. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now understand the flow here. God just got through saying, I don't want any images made of me. Now he does reveal himself verbally by describing his active attributes, which would defy any image. I mean, think about this. How could you make an image that depicts God's jealous justice and lavish mercy at the same time? It would be very difficult to do. So the entire Bible gives us a verbal, full-orbed description, portrait, you might say, of the living and true God. And here's just a snapshot. There's only three attributes that are given here in the second commandment of God. Number one, he's jealous. Number two, he's just. Number three, he's merciful. Look at the first one. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. How do you feel when you hear that? It probably doesn't sit too well with you. You don't typically think of the God you worship as being jealous It's like the little girl who wrote out her prayer to God and said, Dear God, why does the Bible say you're a jealous God? I thought you had everything. Yet here is the word to describe our great God. He's jealous. By the way, it's not just mentioned once, but eight times in the Bible he's called jealous. And he never apologizes for it. He didn't say, well, really, what I mean is. He just states it. Now, I want to show you just a couple of those to, to frame this. Turn to Exodus chapter 34 for a moment. 34. We'll look at a few verses, and we'll go back. Exodus 34:10, And he said, Behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth nor in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out before you the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, the Termites, all the rest. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. One more, and then we'll go back. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. We looked at that chapter last week, but not this verse that we're about to. Genesis 4, verse 23. Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which He made with you, and you make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. What does that mean? Well, the Hebrew word is kanan. It means literally to get red in the face. When applied to human beings, it has negative connotations. When applied to God, it has wonderful connotations. It really means zeal over one's property. Hands off, this is my property. By the way, I think that uh, something is wrong in any relationship of love where there's not some kind of jealousy. I'm jealous over my wife. If somebody came up to me and said, Skip, can I take uh, your wife out on a date? You think I'm going to go, Well, I'm not a jealous husband. Go ahead. I'd be a nutcase if I said that. You don't lay a hand on her. I have a jealous love for her, and that's healthy. That's why Paul in the New Testament says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy because I've espoused you to one husband, and that's Christ. So here's how other translations have managed this. The Young's literal translation says, For I am a zealous God. A Torah translation. I am an impassioned God. The Living Bible. I, the Lord your God, am very possessive. I will not share your affection with any other God. Another translation says, I tolerate no rivals. And finally, another translation, I demand all your love. So, here's the flow. Because I am, I'm real, I'm alive, I'm active. Because I delivered you out of Egypt, I am jealous, possessive, and impassioned for all of your love and devotion. I'm a jealous God. You're my property. I want all of your devotion second depiction of God in this verse it says visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation let me tell you what that doesn't mean if you'll allow me this does not mean what some call the generational curse and I've heard this for years and frankly it's just it's nauseating to hear Well, you've got a generational curse because of what your father or grandfather or great-grandfather did has been passed on, and you're cursed with this generational curse. But hallelujah, you come to one of our meetings and we'll go through this special mystical thing and get rid of the generational curse. That's a waste of time. Because for some reason, and they refer to this text, they didn't notice what it says. Look at that. It says... Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who what? Hate me. So this verse has nothing at all to do with a believer. Only an unbeliever. Do you hate God? No, you love Him. So you don't have a generational curse that's going to follow you down through the line that you can't control. In fact, what does the New Testament say? If we confess our sins, He's... Faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins and cleanse us from all of our iniquity. So, look back at this verse. It's pretty simple. Oh, and by the way, the Bible's clear that children will not be punished for their parents' sins. Deuteronomy twenty four sixteen, Ezekiel 18, verses 19 through 32 make that exceptionally clear. Children will not be punished for or held responsible for their parents' sins. What this does mean then is that children are going to feel the impact of the choices made by the parents so that children raised in an environment exposed to idolatry will naturally be prone to idolatry because of the sin of parents. Here's Here's the overarching lesson here. You never sin in isolation. You never sin alone. You can never say, my sin only affects me. No, it doesn't. It affects other people. Jonah could have said, well, I'm going to disobey God, and it's not going to affect anybody else. But then he got on a boat. And it affected everybody on that boat. And Achan chose the Babylonian garment in the battle of Jericho. And the entire children of Israel were defeated at the next battle because of his sin. You never sin in isolation. A disobedient Christian is a menace to everyone. But here's the third and final way God reveals himself. He makes another proclamation, saying in verse 6, But showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me, and keep my commandments. In other words, God's mercy is always greater than judgment. Sin's going to affect three or four generations. His mercy will be lavished on thousands of generations. I love God's math. I love it that when whatever you subtract from your life by disobedience, God can multiply back in His blessings through His mercy on your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. So, here it is. You want to give your kids a lasting legacy? Worship the true God in the true manner. You want to protect your grandkids from lots of junk? Worship the true God in the true manner. Now here's a bottom line statement that I think we'll summarize last week and this week. The only worship that God accepts is the worship that God directs. The only worship that God accepts is the worship that God directs. This is in contrast to all the statements. Well, I picture God as this, so I worship God in my own way, this, that, and the other thing. Great, but the only worship God accepts is the worship that God directs. So you worship the true and living God because He's the only one out there. And you worship the true and the living God in the true manner, and He spells that out. Okay, so you don't need an image for this reason. You have Him. You have Him. So if you have uh, a real, uh, an authentic, an abiding, consistent, daily relationship and walk with Him, you don't need anything else. And you have nothing to fear. You and I can walk through life with great confidence because your God, well, you have a big God. And it doesn't matter how small you feel or if you can feel God at the moment or apprehend God, your God's much bigger. Remember The Lion King? It's a great theological movie, by the way, if you haven't seen it. The Lion King is the story of Simba, this little lion cub, the lion prince, and his father is Mufasa. And one day, uh, little Simba and his friend Nala... Remember the story? <laughs> Do any of you remember The Lion King? Okay. Hallelujah. I thought I lost you for a minute. Okay, so there they are. They they go to the elephant graveyard. Remember that scene? And the hyenas are around them. Hyenas are yelping and howling. And little Simba thinks, oh, I'm going to scare these hyenas off with my roar. Now, he's just a little kid. So he has a ferociously pitiful, weak roar. Ah! The hyenas, like, big whoop, and they just lick their chops and surround him closer, concentric little circles. He tries it again. They get closer and closer and about ready to devour young Simba when Simba says, I'm going to try it one more time, opens his mouth, and this ferocious, loud roar is heard. All the hyenas run away. And Simba puffs his little chest out like, that was good. Then he looks back to someone he hadn't seen. It was his father standing above them, Mufasa, that gave that giant roar. No wonder the hyenas ran away. It wasn't because of this little peep squeak. The king was there. Thus, Simba had nothing to fear. So... Worship your king with an active, living relationship because he is an active, living being who is much greater than any image could ever depict. The best way I know how to do that is by honoring his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you honor the son, you honor the father. If you don't honor the son, you don't honor the father. By the way, Jesus is called by Paul the image of the invisible God the image of the invisible God. If you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. You say, well, Skip, that doesn't do me a lot of good because I've never seen the Father nor Jesus. But Peter said, having not seen yet you love and rejoice with joy unspeakable, full of glory. You can see the traces of that relationship as you walk by faith. You see Him answering your prayers. You walk by faith. You place yourself out there And you live confidently with nothing to fear because though you can't see him like little Simba couldn't see his father, he sees you. And he knows just when to roar. Our Heavenly Father, we love you. You are. You're real. You exist. And you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. Yes, there is a mystery in part in faith, though it is certainly based on objectivity, things that bear evidence of who you are. It's very plain. Yet we don't see you. Isaiah said, Verily, thou art a God that hidest himself, and yet you show us every day your splendor in your creation, in your word, in answered prayer, in circumstances. Father, I pray that we would be not only content but confident in worshiping the true and living God in the way that He reveals Himself and demands. Lord, we want our lives to give You glory. That's what it's all about. We're here on this earth to give You glory. I pray that our lives would be lived to make You smile every day. In Jesus' name.